Good morning. It's a it's a beautiful morning. It's a great day to come and worship the Lord. Um, my name is Jacob Yarbrough. I serve as one of the elders here, and um, at Calvary. And this morning I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And I invite you to follow along with me. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I don't know what what year or revision our pew Bible is, but that's that's what I'm reading from. So Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning again, church. I just want to, again, express my gratitude um, for the leadership, for the heart of our worship team, for the heart of you guys. I think our church has a firm grasp on what it means to worship the Lord, and uh, I'm grateful just to be a part of it, um, just to be here with you guys. Nonetheless... The title of my message this morning is The Heart of Worship. Uh, Our church may be on the right path, but we need to make sure that we stay there. There are so many churches today that have gotten askew 
from what it means to actually worship the Lord. I don't mean they don't show up, they don't pay their tithe, they don't sing their songs, they don't raise their hands, they don't have an emotional experience. But they've lost something of what it means to actually worship God. I want to make sure that that doesn't happen to us. One author put it this way. As he's looking out at the culture today, he says, Pastors and elders as leaders fall under tremendous pressure to keep the people in the pews entertained. Less than our market-driven evangelical subculture, where the consumer is keen, folks will leave the worship at the church and go to the church across town with the better band, bigger stage, and more sophisticated sound and lighting system. Sermons are becoming messages which sound softer and less threatening than a sermon. And the message is delivered by one of us, a regular guy, not God's servant, who is a steward of the mysteries of God, who must handle the word of truth with the utmost care. Another author, Edward Farley, who writes for Christian Century, commented that contemporary worship creates a tone that is casual comfortable, chatty, busy, humorous, pleasant, and at times just even cute. I think our familiarity with God has bred complacency in the church as a whole. Again, not necessarily ours. We spent too much time basking in the light of his goodness, in his grace, in his mercy, his loving kindness. We do a tremendous job of echoing these various attributes. But the church for a long time has left off on preaching about the holiness of God. And so because of that. The church has forgotten one of the most important aspects of worship. So this morning I want to take us back to the heart of worship. I want to look at the essential truths, those components that are essential to worship. To do that, I've chosen this passage. There's a hermeneutical principle called the law of first You can go to the first place in Scripture where a word or a doctrine is taught, usually bound up in that passage, is everything that you need to know to trace it all the way forward through the rest of Scripture. So, in the most literal sense, this passage is the heart of worship. This is the first place in Scripture where worship is mentioned. And so I hope this morning that we can glean from this passage the things that we need to carry forward. The big idea, as I look at this passage this morning, is that the heart of worship is faith-filled obedience, reverential fear, and Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again. For Jesus, for our King lifted high, we pray that you would give us a heart this morning to worship you in sincerity and in truth. You said that these were the kind of worshipers that you were seeking.
Like Noah prayed, don't let us be hypocrites. Don't let us Monday through Saturday live like the devil and then come in here and call what we do in here worship. So I pray you get a hold of our hearts. Deal with us as we need to be dealt with. I pray that you would encourage and convict and refresh comfort. Love on you people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. At the heart of worship is faith-filled obedience. I'm going to touch on verses 1 through 8 again as we examine this reality. And I just want to say up front, um, I wrestled with another passage. Uh, I found out kind of late that I was going to be preaching. Byron had texted me Monday, but then I, I didn't get a confirmation until Wednesday. But between Monday and Wednesday... I really thought that the Lord was going to have me preach something else. I was gearing myself toward a different passage. And uh, he just wouldn't allow me to do the one that I had my heart set on. And so what I'm preaching to you this morning is actually a passage that I have preached on before. But it took me over a month to get through it. (laughs) So I'm going to do my best to condense uh, what is here uh, so that you can walk away this morning having gotten what is actually in the passage in a timely manner. I say all that to say I understand that there will be a lot that will be overlooked, so just know that I'm aware of that. Uh, but in verse 1, the scripture says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. God intends for the following things that happen in this passage to be an examination of Abraham's heart. He's going to reveal some things to Abraham. And through the process, really, he's revealing some things to the future generations, to us included. I hated getting exams. (laughs) I mean, I hated them. And the worst kind of exams were the pop quizzes. You'd have a great weekend, you know, everything went great over the weekend, you had fun, you lifted the burdens of all of your responsibilities and got away from school and then Monday morning you walk through the door and you get smacked in the face with a horrible pop quiz. Is that not like the worst thing on planet earth, right? Uh, Some of y'all are too far removed from school to really appreciate that. All right. This is a pop quiz. I mean, this is one of those deals where Abraham is really just smacked in the face with uh, one of these terrible tests. What does God want to prove through these tests? And there are, there are real benefits, tangible benefits to taking tests like these. There's a reason why teachers, you know, hit you with these pop quizzes. It's so that you know where you stand, so that you know what you need to do. Um, Well, there are three questions that God's going to pose through this test. One is, Abraham, do you have proper faith in me yet? I want you to understand, Abraham has been walking with the Lord for a very long time. 
I mean a very long time. Some estimates of 80 years. A very long time. He's going to ask Abraham if he has proper faith. He's going to ask Abraham if he has proper fear of him yet. And then he's going to ask Abraham if he will obey him. Even when his heart screams at him that he shouldn't. Those are the three tests. Do you have faith in me? Do you fear me? And when you obey me, when your world is twisted upside down by me. So, what's the test? Verse 2. God says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. God had entered into a covenant with Abraham and he, was, he had promised him a number of things. God makes uh, Abraham the promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. He makes him the promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He makes him the promise that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. He promises that uh, he would give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. He promised to extend all of these promises, to make them full, to complete them through the person of Isaac. Just let that sink in. Everything that he knows about God, all of the promises, the covenant, the thing that has bound him in relationship to God, all these things are tangent to Isaac. And now God's saying, go kill Isaac. The entire covenant rests on Isaac's birth. In his life. With no Isaac, there are no descendants as numerous as the sand. There are no descendants as numerous as the stars. There is no entrance and possession of the land of Canaan. With no Isaac, no covenant. So, how is Abraham supposed to reconcile the promise that God has already made to him with the command that God is now placing upon him? How does he bring these two things together? It doesn't make any sense. It seems to violate the promises that God has made. And once more, what's even worse is that the command that's being placed upon Abraham right now seems to violate the very character that Abraham has come to know and understand about God. He is in a place of theological crisis. You guys ever been there? God ever brought you through a place where you thought you knew God? And he shook your world, twisted it upside down, put you in a place of theological crisis? That's where Abraham is at. Abraham knew God. He knew his character. He knew that God was a righteous judge. And that what he was asking of Abraham 
was outside of his character. When Lot had been taken captive and Abraham was given the ministry of responsibility to plead with God about saving the life of Lot, and he goes before God, what does he say? He says, surely the righteous judge of all the earth wouldn't do this thing. He wouldn't kill the righteous along with the wicked, would he? That's what he understood about God. And in Genesis 18.25, he says, far be it from you. This is not you. You wouldn't do this thing. And he didn't. And Abraham's knowledge, his belief that this is God's character was confirmed over and over and over in little ways like that. And yet now, God is saying, offer your only son, the son that you love, Isaac, as a burnt offering. Child sacrifice was not an uncommon practice in biblical times and Old Testament times. Um, many of the evil pagan societies practiced child sacrifice to various idols and demons, Molech and Baal. Moloch, if you're not familiar with them, was a large bull-faced idol. They had made a very large metal bull that had a variety of different chambers in it. And when they wanted to worship, um, when they wanted to enter into their ceremonies, they would heat this large metal container to red-hot temperatures. And then they would throw their children into the cavities and trap them in there to be burned to death. Their screams were so loud that history tells us they beat on large drums to silence the sound of the children screaming so that the parents wouldn't have a change of heart. Reportedly, one of the worship sites where this kind of thing happened was not too far from where God was asking Abraham to offer up Isaac. And because it was such a prevalent practice, a lot of experts believe that Abraham and Isaac were surely familiar with the practice. It is likely that they have heard the drums before. It is possible that they heard them that day as Isaac's being marched up the mountain to be a living sacrifice. God had commanded his people not to practice these wicked activities. In Leviticus 18.21, God specifically tells Israel not to offer their children to Moloch. In Deuteronomy 12.31, he tells Israel, You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they do have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So we learn, after the fact, after 
Israel has been constituted as a nation, that this is detestable in the sight of God, this kind of thing. But that doesn't help Abraham right now. Right now, Abraham is being commanded to carry his son up the mountain, lay him on a pile of sticks, and set him on fire. Just place yourself in the Scripture. It's not just a story. These are real people. This is the father of our faith. This is a man just like you and me who deeply loved his son, who cared tremendously for him. This is a man that also feared God and felt the weight of his responsibility as a human being to his creator. And he is being torn apart on the inside by the command. The promises of God, the character of God, the love for His Son being hacked into pieces by this command. How does Abraham respond? His world crashing around him. God's demanding that he sacrifice the son that he loves. The command threatens to violate the covenant that God had made with him and threatens to violate the character that he understood about God. Abraham's happy reality is being twisted, bent, broken by the commandment. So I'm going to look in just a minute at how he responds. But before I do, I would ask you, how would you? And even beyond that question, how are you relating to God on a day-to-day basis when there aren't any cataclysmic events? When there isn't some tremendous commandment placed upon you that's tearing your soul apart? How are you responding to God right now? Abraham responds with faith-filled obedience. Look at verses 3 through 8. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there And we will worship and return to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and he said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Abraham's knowledge of God 
wasn't as well informed as ours is. Now that being said, there's a tremendous difference between information and knowing somebody. He may not have had a lot of information about God like we do, but he knew God intimately. He didn't know that God could raise somebody from the dead. You ever thought about that? We know that. We've seen that in Scripture. Uh, the, the Scripture is replete with all of the attributes of God, with the power of God. We have all of this information that, that Abraham just didn't have. We've seen, we've had the benefit of seeing Jesus through the lens of the Scripture walk out his daily life and exercise a multiplicity of extremely supernatural capacities. Turning water into wine, healing the blind, raising up dead people. Abraham had never seen that before. That had never even been talked about before. A dead man coming back to life. But the scripture tells us, gives us some insight into exactly what Abraham was thinking as he prepares himself to obey God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered, as here it is, he thought, he reasoned within himself, this is what he's thinking, that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. He had no idea how on earth God was going to keep his promises to him and maintain his righteous character. All Abraham knew was that God was commanding it. He had a responsibility to his creator. He had to go kill his son. No matter how much he loved him, no matter how much he cared, no matter how much it would break him inside, his ultimate responsibility above everything else on planet earth, above every emotion, above every thought, was to obey. And he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to reconcile the commandment with the promise. And all he could think within himself is, well, God must be able to raise the dead. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I know this about God. He's good. And that's what I'm going to hold on to. I'm going to hold on to what I know. I may not be able to rationalize and reason out how it's all going to pan out. But I'm going to hold on to what I know about God. And I'm going to obey. And so in his mind, he contemplated a scenario that had never been seen and never been heard of before. He had no idea that God could or couldn't do this. But he said he must be able to. I can't think of another way he's going to be able 
to do it. I don't know where you are in your life right now. I have no idea what kind of tough situations you're walking through. What kind of crises you might be facing. Things that you've cried out to God about. And seemingly the things that God's commanded you to do seem to go against the grain of your circumstances. The way that things are actually working out. And you can't reason in your heart and in your mind how the God that I know is allowing this thing in my life, but He's commanded me to walk in faith. I can't reason out. I can't couple the two. I can't rationalize it. I can't make sense of it. Can I just encourage you? Just hold on to what you know about Him. He's good. The original passage I wanted to take you guys to this morning was a passage from Exodus where Moses, after years of knowing God, came to a very difficult place where God's demanding that he minister to this large, rebellious people, two million plus, and he just breaks down after some cataclysmic events. And he says, I just can't do it. God's threatening, I'm not going to go on with y'all anymore. I'm going to discard these people. And Moses, you're just going to have to do it all by yourself. I'll make you a brand new nation. And Moses just has a breakdown moment. He says, I can't do this. Don't forsake these people. What about your name? He said, and God said, well, okay, well, I won't discard them, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses said, I can't. If you don't go with me, don't send us at all. And he has this little breakdown moment where he begs God, show me your glory. I want to know what makes you different than everybody else that I've ever experienced, all the other gods that I've learned of in Egypt. And one of the very first things that God does in an effort to show Moses that, he reveals his name, which is his character, And right on the front end of it, he's good. That's what he wanted Moses to understand. Abraham got that. I hope that you get that. Whatever you're walking through, know that God sees you and that he is good. So, at the heart of worship is faith-filled Obedience, And if you can't, through the lens of faith, see that God is good, you won't obey. You just won't. So that's necessary for worship. At the heart of worship is reverential fear. Look at verses 9 through 12. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So Abraham has answered the first question. Yes, I have faith. 
Now he's answering the second question. Yes, I fear God. I fear my Creator. This is one of the doctrines that I'm afraid that we've moved away from. Treating God as holy. Coming before Him in reverential fear. Understanding that He is the Creator of the universe. That He has made us. And then He has sent His only Son to purchase us with His holy, pure blood. And we treat Him so casually, so flippantly. Fear is the hallmark of true worshipers. The fear of God or the fear of the Lord, this is one of the most common phrases in the Old Testament. I'm just going to pick a few out from some of the wisdom literature, in particular the Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 3.7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Unless you think that this is just an Old Testament reference, Jesus himself says, don't fear them. Don't fear man. Fear the one that can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Jesus said that. Fear of God is emphasized all the way through the scripture. Right now, God is not exercising tremendous violent acts of judgment, and so men have become too complacent. But one day, when the Lord Jesus returns as a righteous warrior king to place his foot on the neck of his enemy, the scripture tells us then men will run in fear and try to hide themselves in the caves of the rocks. God is to be feared. We are to have a reverential fear of God. This concept was as vital to Israel's theology of God as it is to ours today. In the Old Testament, essentially, to fear God meant that you had faith in God, true faith. You were a true worshiper. Psalm twenty-five, fourteen says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He will make them know His covenant. And the term secret there in Hebrew is sod, and it means counsel. It, ref- it refers to a close relationship of confidence. Those who fear Yahweh will have his friendship. And isn't that what Jesus said too? No longer do I call you slaves, because they don't know what the master's doing, but now I'll call you friends. Joseph identified himself as a God fearer when he was reunited to his brothers, Genesis forty two eighteen. 
Jonah identifies himself as a God-fearer when he's questioned by the sailors. Jonah 1.9. Job was described by God himself as a God-fearer. In Job 1.1, he says, blameless and upright and one who feared God and turned away from evil. So another question for you. Do you identify yourself as a God-fearer? When you do an internal evaluation of your heart, do you find that you are a God-fearer? And probably the more important question Would God identify you as a God-fearer? Would he do like he did for Job and put his finger on you and say, this one fears me? It is hard to obey if you don't fear him. Fear is a potent motivator for obedience. Proverbs 16.6 tells us that the fear of the Lord is crucial for avoiding evil. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. This is the desire that God declared for Moses. He said, I wished all of my people, I wished all of the nation of Israel feared me this way. So that they would avoid All of these things that I've commanded them not to dabble in. Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them. That they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Abraham possessed a healthy fear of God. He understood something about God that has been somewhat lost in our culture. And it motivated him to do the most unthinkable thing at the commandment of God. To go offer up his son. I think most of us would do the things that God would ask us to do if they were easy. If it didn't cut into our lifestyle too much. If it didn't hurt our feelings. If it didn't interfere with our theology. But to do the hard things. Without a healthy fear of the Almighty God. Your heart thinks that. It owns itself. And it doesn't have an obligation. Moses didn't, or Abraham didn't think that way. He feared God. Again, we know the grace of God. We know the mercy of God. We know the forgiveness of God. We know the kindness of God. But without a proper understanding of His holiness, our picture of God is incomplete and it's dangerous. It's dangerous just to see God as all loving. It is dangerous just to see God as just all kind. 
all forgiving and leave out all holy. The angels in heaven do not sit around the throne of God and proclaim loving, loving, loving. They do not proclaim kind, kind, kind. They don't proclaim forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. They proclaim holy, holy, holy. Don't you think we should be proclaiming it more here? Holy, holy, holy. It's dangerous to forget that. In 2018, there was a private zookeeper who had raised a a male lion from a cub. They had been friends since that animal was a baby, and they had a good relationship. Um, He would go in the cage and call the animal, and it would come, and it would would rub up against his leg, uh, just like a house cat, and he would pet it and play with it, and One day, he opened the cage to go in to see his friend that he had come to know for years. And this animal, out of instinct, grabbed him by the neck and drug him into the woods. There's a video of it. (laughs) I watched it a couple times on Facebook. It's startling. Startling, not because... Giant lion found something tasty that he wanted to eat. But startling, because that man had become so complacent around such a large, vicious animal whose instinct is to kill. He had forgotten that that lion was a dangerous predator. The most dangerous predator on the planet. He had been far too exposed, overexposed, to the other attributes of that animal. He had forgotten it was a lion. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, which if you've never read, it's an, it's an allegory, um, depicts Jesus as this literal lion king in this magical land of talking animals. In one of the books, Lewis has two girls that are preparing to meet Aslan, the lion king. And uh, as they're being prepped to go in and meet the king, there are two other talking animals that are preparing them for this encounter, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And uh, the, the girls, you know, coming from the real world into the magical world, they didn't know that the king of the land was actually a lion. And so they were afraid to go in and meet the lion. So I'm just going to pick up the conversation where they find out that he's actually a lion and not a man. They say, oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Miss Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. My heart is just wrenching because I know that we've been overexposed to the goodness of God and underexposed to the reality that He's not safe. He is good. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He is merciful. He is kind. But that's not a complete picture. He's also holy. We need to reclaim a right understanding of who God is. Abraham had that complete picture and it motivated him to obey God so at the heart of worship we see there's faith filled obedience there's reverential fear and there's Jesus if you leave any one of these three out of your worship. You're not worshiping. The living word of God has to be the focus. It's what it's all about. I heard a preacher say that Jesus is pictured on every single page of the Bible. Even when his name is not there. If you read a page and you didn't see Jesus, you need to go back and read it again. Because it's all about him. And that's what Jesus said. All of it points to me. That statement is abundantly clear in this passage. This entire passage is designed to train our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has seen in the entire thing. In everything from the place that God instructs Abraham to go, to the person of Isaac, to the sacrifice itself, to the, the substitution. Jesus is in all of it. So I'm just going to spend the last few minutes that we have pointing out these realities. And again, I know I'm not touching on everything, but we only had so much time this morning. So Jesus is seen in the place. Mount Moriah, just so you know, is no ordinary place. It is the most hotly contested pieces of land on the planet today. The most hotly contested pieces of land on the planet Everybody wants that land. They think that something about that land is important to their ancestry. The Muslims, the Jews, the Christians, everybody. Everybody wants a piece of it. But that's not why it's no ordinary place. 
The Jews believe that this is the very center. This mountain that's being talked about here is the very center of the universe. They think that beneath that mountain is the foundation rock of the earth. In fact, they have a plaque at the Wayland Wall that says so. It says this, Jewish tradition teaches that the Temple Mount is the focal point of creation. In the center of the mountain lies the foundation stone of the world. Here, Adam came into being. Here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob served God. The first and second temples were built upon this mountain. The Ark of the Covenant was set upon the foundation stone itself. Jerusalem was chosen by God as the dwelling place of the Shekinah. Just think through it with me. The universe is a massive place, is it not? There are hundreds of thousands of trillions of galaxies in the universe. I don't want to stretch your brain too much. Let's just focus on ours. Our universe, something like 100 trillion miles apart, if you were to travel at light speed, 186,000 miles an hour, whatever, or a second, whatever that is, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end to the other end. When you look up, at the night sky, on a beautiful summer, cool night, you're out in the country, you don't have the effects of light pollution, you can see the myriad of stars that are on display. You're only looking at a fraction of what's in our universe, a fraction of what's in our galaxy. You think of our galaxy as a, a supreme pizza with multiple slices. What you get to see with your eye is barely what's on one pepperoni. God chose this planet, this planet, to be the stage that he wor- would work out the drama of redemption. And on this grand stage... He picked this place. Of all the universe, God handpicked this place and said, I love this place. This will be the place of sacrifice. This will be the place of salvation. It's a remarkable place. It's no ordinary mountain. It's on this mountain that the term worship is first unpacked for humanity. It is on this mountain that the promise of the substitute lamb was made. And again, on this mountain that the temple and the altar of God would be built. And many, many believe that it was on this mountain that the cross of Christ was erected. A mountain that Abraham nicknamed the Lord will provide. So you can see Jesus there. You see Jesus in the person of Isaac. Hebrews 11.19 tells us that Isaac was a type of Christ. I've already read that verse to you. There are numerous ways that we see that. 
in Isaac. Isaac's birth was prophesied. There was an appointed preset time for Isaac's birth. Genesis 18, 9 through 14 tells us that. Jesus' birth was also prophesied. And there was an appointed time uh, that was uh, made for his arrival. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His birth was prophesied. The timing of it was dictated. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Isaac was given his name before his birth, Genesis seventeen nineteen. Jesus' name was also given before his birth. An angel informed Joseph that Mary was with child, told him what they were going to name the baby, uh, said that they were to call him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. Both of their births were miracles. Sarah and both Abraham were well beyond childbirthing years. There was no capacity in them at all to be able to accomplish this. Mary, of course, was a virgin. Both supernatural in nature. Both had a relationship to their fathers as their only begotten son. God said this of Isaac. Abraham had other children. He had Ishmael. But in God's eyes, this was the only son. This was the heir. And of course, God said that about his son as well, John 3.16. Joseph's life was figuratively raised from the dead for three days. As Abraham approaches this mountain... He's on this journey to fulfill the commandment of God in his mind and in his heart. He knows his son is dead. Isaac was figuratively raised from the dead. Jesus was literally raised from the dead after three years, uh, three days. Isaac surrenders to his father's will. Isaac was not an eight-year-old boy. And Abraham was not a 45-year-old man. Isaac was a full-grown man. Isaac could have wrestled with his father. He could have overpowered his father. He could have said no. He could have ran. My son could outrun me by the time I was 40. And Abraham is well beyond years. He surrendered to his father's will. He got, he climbed up on top of that wooden fire pit and laid there of his own volition. Jesus surrendered to his father's will. He could have called down a multitude of angels and immediately been swept right out of that situation. But he surrendered to the Father's will. He did what the Father wanted him to do. Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice. Jesus carried the cross. 
John 19:17 they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha Jesus is seen in a multitude of ways in Isaac he's seen in the very selection of the place he's also seen in the promise that was made and when Isaac is making this trek with Abraham He's like, Dad, I see the wood, I see the fire. Where's the lamb? I mean, he gets it right there. Isaac gets it right there. He knows what's about to happen. And what does Abraham say? He says, God will provide for himself a lamb. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. When God saw that Abraham was going to fulfill his commandment, he had the knife in his hand and he's about to plunge it through the chest of his son. An angel stays his hand. He says, don't do this thing to the lad. God sees that you fear him now. And Abraham looked up and in the thicket, what did he see? A ram. A ram is not a lamb, y'all. A ram is not a lamb. The promise was a lamb, that God would provide for himself a lamb. In that moment, God provided a ram for Abraham to be the substitute for Isaac. The lamb came later. That's why John is able to say when he sees Jesus, Behold! The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's when the Lamb made its way to that mountain. That's when the Lamb showed up to fulfill the promise that had been made. To do the very thing that Abraham knew God would do. He would provide. Jesus is the promised Lamb. He's the sacrifice for your sin He's the sacrifice for my sin. And if we think that we're doing anything close to worship that leaves Jesus out of the equation, forget about it. He is central to worship from the very beginning. To worship, to be the kind of true worshiper that God desires Those three elements have to be part of your life. Faith-filled obedience, reverential fear, and Jesus. And again, we're not just coming in here on Sunday morning and saying, I'll get my arms around those things today. That's not true worship. We come in here collectively on Sunday morning to celebrate, to share life. Our worship is happening when we leave here. Our worship is happening in the way that we respond to this message. Our worship is happening when we go engage with the people that we work with. Our worship is happening in the way that we engage with our spouses and our children. Our worship is happening when we're all alone and we're not engaging with anybody. And it's just us and God, and He sees our heart. 
And he knows what we're thinking about. He knows what we're meditating on. He knows what we're singing about. That's where worship's happening. Jesus wrote the last chapter of Moriah. Time after time, Jesus walked that mountain. He climbed it to enter his father's house. Time after time after time. He taught his disciples on that mountain. He overturned the tables of the money changers on that mountain. On Mount Moriah, Jesus declared, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Jesus spent the last week of his life on that mountain, Mount Moriah, the place of sacrifice, the place of obedience, the place where worship was first mentioned. If you want to know about worship, if you want to practice it in your life, again, faith-filled obedience, reverential fear in Jesus. Can't leave any of those three out. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much for loving us. We do love you. We thank you for our church. We are grateful for our leadership. For our worship team, so grateful for Noah and for Blake and for PJ and for all the rest that contribute so much. For the people in the sound booth, for our elders, for those that are guarding their heart, who are purifying themselves so that they can be a picture of you to the rest of us. So that their hearts can be trained to lead us in worship. We know it's not just the song, it's not just the melody, it's not the emotion, it's not the hands that are raised. Those things might be symbols of true and genuine worship, but they might not be. Lord, you know our heart. You know where each one of us resides this morning, how close or how far we are from you. Lord, you've shown us from your word what it means to be a true worshiper. If any of us this morning are lacking these elements in our life, please get a hold of us. And please don't let us leave here unchanged. Bring us to a place of submission even before we leave so our lives can be glorifying to you while we're here, while we're at home, while we're at work, while we're alone. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.